thank you everybody for joining us this afternoon. Um, Dr. Scrace, you go right ahead. Uh, well, thank you very much, Ms. Mays. And I'm uh, delighted you're helping us out. We really appreciate you being here. Also bring my greetings from both Christine uh, Ross, our medical uh, epidemiologist, uh, and, and also Laura Parahone, uh, the two doctors that usually join me in the press conferences uh, with the press of caseload we have right now. We're, uh, we're trying this differently to optimize our time to battle the pandemic. And then we're, each week, we're going to try to focus on those top three things that I think we all ought to be paying attention to. We are at a all-time high in case counts. I think basically for the last eight days, we've had case counts uh, very close to 4,000 to uh, very close to 6,000. So maybe a plateau of sorts, but certainly a very high case count and twice as high as uh, 15 months ago, 14 months ago in November of 2020, and much higher than Delta as well. Uh, hospitalizations for COVID are up uh, not quite as high uh, during Delta and too early to tell for Omicron, but uh, hospitals are fuller than they've ever been. And you, and you all know from previous press conferences, they've been full for the past um, five months. And lastly, deaths. Uh, we did see a plateau after Delta. Not sure what we're going to see yet from Omicron. One promising sign, though, from our hospitals is that we are, they're seeing and we are seeing a definite drop in the percent of people with COVID in the hospital who are on ventilators. So that's a positive sign. Could be an early indication here in New Mexico that uh, Omicron may be a little bit less serious disease, but we don't have any data that supports some of the contentions from places like South Africa. Uh, and uh, we've talked about that in the past. <clears throat> a quick update. Uh, to alert you to an issue we're facing. How many effective outpatient treatment courses do we have on hand here in New Mexico? Up until this week or last week, we've been treating people with the BAM-Eddy combination, uh, Regeneron, Cetopramab. Those are the three monoclonal antibodies. And then recently, we started getting a supply of oral agents, Paxlovid, and molnupiravir. I'm just showing you a supply of effective drugs. And what you can see happen on the 19th is Regeneron in red and Bam Eddy in blue went away because they are not effective for, uh, <clears throat> for uh, Omicron. And you know we have them in supply, but this is now a graph of effective drugs. And so there's a gap here. We are working on that. We might deal with some of that in the QA. We do have a system for triaging uh, the delivery of these drugs to the highest risk individuals, just uh, like we do in any triage process. Uh, interesting trends in vaccines. Uh, you know, we went through that period in September through November where pretty much every week the CDC and FDA were coming out with new recommendations for boosters for some people, boosters for all adults, boosters for, you know, adolescents, et cetera, et cetera. We saw a big uptick, mainly due to boosters. Uh, and then a, a divot there with over the Thanksgiving weekend, and then another uh, divot over the winter holidays. But we are hoping, and part of my main message today is 
We would really like to see those booster shots go back up. Uh, they are effective uh, for Omicron, and that is what we're uh, really focused on right now. And speaking of that, basically, the hospitalization rate for unvaccinated people who get COVID is about five and a half percent, a little less than half of that for people who've been vaccinated with the primary series, and extremely low for those with the booster. Same with uh, deaths, uh, you know, 1.26 percent. Uh, for those with uh, um, <clears throat> with who don't have any vaccinations, only a third of a percent for those of the primary series, and almost negligible. We got a uh, four, I believe, uh, Omicron deaths in people with vaccines and boosters. Uh, I know that we have at least four of those, maybe at most eight. Four of those had significant immuno uh, deficiency issues, and so tremendous, tremendous uh, difference in odds here, and. Uh, I think uh, I think I'm gonna Marissa. I'm gonna deal with my airplane analogy right now. Uh, someone said to me uh, recently. I've heard from a lot of people like I'm just gonna take my chances. You know, I I'm just gonna get COVID and get it over with. Well, number one, getting COVID doesn't mean it's over with uh, unless you die from COVID, which I'll get to in a minute. Because you can get. We've had many people with recurrent cases of COVID. Uh, but number two, I started thinking about it, and I used. Uh, 1.16%, which is overall, I could redo the calculation quickly, but I looked up on the internet and and the FAA controls 40,000 flights uh, a day. And if 1.16% of those actually crashed, that would be 640 plane crashes per day. And so the question for the people who are saying, I'm just going to take my chances is if you had plane reservations, how many days of 640 plane crashes in the United States would it take to convince you to maybe cancel those and maybe put that off until air travel was more safe? And so one, you know, 1.16% doesn't sound like a lot, but it is actually, it would be the equivalent of it is 640 plane crashes per day. So uh, obviously the booster works, uh, no question about it. Uh, particularly with hospitalizations and deaths. It doesn't mean that the primary series isn't good. It just runs out. Its effectiveness runs out. So uh, that was a big point. And then the next slide, I believe, uh, is my three bonus takeaway messages for the week, two of which I've covered. One is, you know, the only one who doesn't want you to get a booster is Omicron itself because boosters work so well. So get that booster. Second or, or third, or, or second is uh, I'll go in. Or I'm going to say a little bit more about these two. Home testing really is going to be a game changer, and as you know, we've gotten uh, I think 800,000 masks in the state, and plan to have two million uh, in the next week. Uh, we are trying to uh, fill that gap between when we started doing this and when the Biden administration plan will start uh, sending out testing to people's homes. I took a test. Uh, before the holidays, it was a, uh, you know, I registered, I drove into Albuquerque, I picked up my son who also needed a test, we waited in line, um, then we got to the check-in booth, and then we waited in line, and then we got into the registration area, and we registered, and waited in line, and then we got a test done, and then we waited, and then we got the results. I think it was uh, the next morning, and so, uh, but that's a big chunk of time, that was 
really for me, it was about four hours of my time and I did not have symptoms. And, and I'm going to mention that in a minute. And so how much better and easier would it be for all of us if we don't have symptoms to just do that test at home? You can get them. Uh, you'll be able to get them soon from the state. You can get them into the month, early next month from the federal government. You can go online today and order them for the federal government. So we are working with county emergency managers, uh, distributing tests. We're gathering information about where you can get those tests that will be posted online. We also are putting together uh, a program with Medicaid. Uh, the folks over in HSD, uh, we talked about that today, to have a similar form of online ordering uh, that can kind of be a safety net over and above the federal supply after we bridge this gap between now and when the federal supply starts coming out. Uh, also, we will be making changes in all of the state's testing to put a much greater emphasis on using PCR for symptomatic individuals and using uh, uh, you know, the home testing or rapid antigen tests in other locations for people without symptoms. And so I like to say that two uh, antigen tests, you know, maybe 36 to 48 hours apart, about the equivalent of one PCR test. So they uh, they have about the same scientific effectiveness, but particularly pe for people who are getting tested once a week to make sure because you're required by your employer for whatever reason, or people who are getting together with family and they just wanna make sure everybody's okay before they all get together like our family did a month ago, uh, we will be switching over and really pushing the rapid antigen tests, saving those PCR tests for people who are sick. And here's why, is because it's very, very important whether you're getting an IV infusion of the one remaining monoclonal antibody, citobromab, or you're gonna be getting a prescription for one of the oral uh, agents that works, so, uh, that works to reduce your risk of hospitalization and death. That time course is critical. We're really aiming for less than five days from the onset of symptoms. So if people have to wait two days uh, for, you know, to get in line to get a PCR, and then they have to wait another couple of days to get the results, and then they have to wait another couple of days to get uh, um, in for an antibody treatment or an oral drug, it's already going to be too late. And so you'll see more about that in the coming weeks. And then last uh, takeaway bonus message of the week is treat yourself better quality mask. I think it turns out that in August of 2020, we showed that slide with all the various effectiveness of masks based on some airflow studies. It wasn't an epidemiologic study of people wearing different masks who got COVID. We don't have, still don't have really solid data on that, but it really showed that N95s work the best and KN95s, you know, in that 95% protection, surgical masks, uh, um, you know, in the 80s, and, cloth mask lower, uh, but now the CDC has come out and I think we agree that better masking protection is important. And so the state has also ordered a million KN95, uh, sorry, or N95 masks, I think it's 50-50, uh, 500,000 each. Uh, that, those two will A, bridge the gap for our state uh, between now and when the federal supply comes out and there will be one you can order online and then provide uh, a protective safety layer above it uh, in order to help us to be able to uh, uh, cover those 
most vulnerable people in our population. So get your booster. Let's work with us to move to home testing and upgrade your mask. And then we will now open it up for questions. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. Um, just a few things to sort of piggyback off of what you have said. I think it's important for everybody to realize that COVID is constantly evolving and, and our information that we get, our research, it's always evolving. So when we may have said everybody should get a PCR test now that we're sending out these home tests, that's just an example of how everything seems to kind of change and evolve over time. And um, that includes medication and how we are going to react towards COVID and those changes that will come about because of it. Um, you know, with those it's, it's also just important to mention that um, we're trying to live with COVID now because it's not something that's just going to magically go away. And, and in doing so, while we're trying to live with COVID, having those home tests will help you get some of your time back. You know, it's kind of trying to make that quality of life, if you will, a little bit better. And um, you being able to do the home tests helps a lot. Dr. Scrace was saying he had to wait in line for hours. And we're really thankful for people who are getting tested. We think that's just tremendous that everybody is taking that time out to do it, to do the right thing and get tested. And this hopefully will help a lot of people be able to um, utilize their time more efficiently. And we will, of course, with all of this information that Dr. Scrace had just mentioned, when it comes to the masks and when those will be distributed, when it comes to the tests and how those will be distributed, we will have more information for you as soon as we get it. Um, at this time, we, we don't have a solid um, date on when the masks will be delivered and how many will go where. And that's the same thing for the tests. We're just going to make sure that it is equitable and, and that every county receives an amount, but um, we're waiting on different plans. And again, as Dr. Scrace mentioned, working with the emergency managers, the county managers to, to formulate their plans. And they're gonna let us know what those plans are and we will share them with everyone as soon as we have them. And with that, we will go ahead and get started. So Dr. Scrace, the first one comes from Ryan Botel from the Albuquerque Journal. Um, he says, one topic that I'm curious about asking today is the current state of monoclonal antibodies and the oral pills in the state. And if there are limits on who can receive them, if there are any limits, then can you provide some guidance for either state or federal health agencies about who should get those treatments? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, anytime in medicine that there's a scarce resource, we always triage. So we're kind of used to this. We're normal. For, uh, it's a normal situation. We were surprised to find out that two of our monoclonal antibodies were not effective uh, for Omicron, but we can expect those kind of surprises all the way down the line. There is a scoring system. We did send it out uh, to all of our providers. Uh, and basically, I'll just give you a general idea. If you're at risk for things, they're assigned points. So if you're over 64 or obese or have diabetes or heart disease, you know, those are two points. And then there are other things like kidney disease and chronic lung disease and being immunocompromised that are three points. Pregnancy is four points, et cetera. And, uh, and, so, yeah, and so we are scoring everyone. And if you have six points, you're eligible for uh, citopramab or the oral agent uh, Paxlovid. And between those two, 
We have about one quarter of what we were giving uh, in previous weeks in terms of treatments. And then the mal, uh, uh, malnupiravir is, uh, is a score of three. We'll get uh, you that. I was dismayed to find out that we don't have this available online. We will get it up online as a document, all of our HAN Health Action Network uh, notifications to providers uh, are should be linked online. And, and Laura tells me we're going to be getting that going very, very soon. So that's what we're doing right now. We are anticipating the supply chain to respond, uh, manufacturers to make more of the effective agents. Federal government has uh, doubled and tripled their requests for supply and are telling us that we're looking at three to four weeks uh, before that gets back up. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. Again, that supply is limited as you were just showing us on the graph and um, and some of the treatments are now going away as we're learning more about it and how, how people respond and what is effective. Um, but I think important to, as he, this chart and we'll get it up, but what he's essentially saying is that it's kind of basic triage. Um, if you go into an emergency room and you have a, a severe head injury, that's going to take precedence over a broken arm. And so this graph sort of highlights these are people who are going to need this treatment and are more pressing for now. So it's not that treatment is not something that you can use. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Grayson, you can talk about this, that some people may be thinking, well, if I get COVID, there's there's medicines that are available and I don't need to get a booster or the, the vaccines because if I get it, I'm going to get treated and there's great medicine. And that's not necessarily true. At least not for the next four weeks. That's correct. Okay, so next question comes from Selena Madrid. Uh, she is from multimedia. She's a multimedia journalist, excuse me, from KFOX 14 and CBS4. Uh, right now, people are not required to report COVID-19 home test results. How do you have a clear picture on how many cases are, are there? Well, it's a great question. And, and, and uh, I'm going to back up a little bit to the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we've never had a perfectly clear picture of how many cases there are. And, and, and as a result of that, and part of that, part of that is because um, there are people who never get tested who have cases. There are folks who, uh, you know, just don't seek out care or testing. And so there's kind of a national discussion right now about whether cases are what we should be focusing on or whether hospitalizations, because it's hard to get a good case count it's much easier to get hospitalizations. And, you know, you may remember a year ago, we were reporting what we were getting in each day, um, which can vary a lot. It varies on the weekends. It varies on how long it takes a lab to process a test. Now, I think part of the transition to learning to live with COVID is a lot less focus on cases. And so I, for example, I don't feel like the overhead involved in making everyone report a negative case is worth having a requirement. We do definitely wanna hear about positive cases, but usually public health directives to individuals um, aren't commonly used. Uh, you may remember, I mean, no one's alive now, but the influenza pandemic of 1918, where the public health department would put a quarantine sign on someone's house. You know, we don't normally pull the public health levers on an individual level. and Part of learning to live with COVID is learning to live with it, not being told how to live with it. And so I'm not I'm not really thinking 
we're seeing a requirement come down the pike. And also re recall that as COVID evolves, fingers crossed, it'll become more like influenza and nobody here is reporting their cases of influenza. You know, the labs do, they're required to, but I've spent a day or two home in bed with a bad case of influenza, never saw a doctor, Department of Health, never knew. So I think this is part of the transition. Thanks, Dr. Scrace. Next question from Ron Warnick, who's the senior writer for the Quay County Sun. He said, because so many Quay County residents recently have recovered from this virus, is there any reason that they might be resistant to the Omicron variant? Yes and no. So let's deal with yes. We do know that prior COVID infections seem to help because people uh, who've had COVID once before don't have as high of a, a recurrence as, as new cases. On the other hand, uh, <clears throat> even now we're seeing Omicron cases and people who've had Delta. So there's no guarantee that the proteins and the antibodies that your body makes to fight off a specific version of COVID, which is how the immune system works. There's no guarantee that whatever it constructed to attach to that, uh, in this case, Delta molecule, will work to attach to an Omicron. So, uh, you know, and then the other thing was the CDC came out with a paper last month that said that the immunity that you get from an infection seems to last um, in, or sorry, that you get from an infection doesn't last as long and seems to be only one sixth as potent, if you will, as what you would get from a vaccine. And now in this phase a vaccine and a booster. So. Uh, everybody does need to adhere to COVID safe practices nonetheless. And that's why we're talking actually about more testing and more masking and better masking. Thanks. Dr. Dr. Scrace, some people seem to think, well, I'll just go ahead and get it. I want to get it and get it over with, and then I'll be fine. And I'm going to be immune. And yeah, and there may no, there may not be any future benefit to you. We just don't know. We don't have enough data, but remember the, uh, 640 planes crashing a day. That's 1.6%. That's your chance of dying is, uh, you know, that would, and most of us, if like two planes crashed on two consecutive days, we would say, oh, wait a minute, I'm going to cancel those plane reservations for later this week and, and plan my trip for later. And so 1.6% is a small number for a population, but if it's you, it's 100% of you that experiences mortality. Thank you. Next question from Aaron Gannett and Donovan Slack from USA Today. Has the state of New Mexico requested staffing from the federal government? And if so, how many people have been requested um, and how many individuals has the federal government sent? Okay, just give me a second here. Uh, uh, great question. And I just I have a few notes for this one, so thanks for asking this in advance. Uh, we've been reporting on this almost every week, but yes, we have requested staffing from the federal government. Uh, we work very, very closely with FEMA for almost everything we do to manage the pandemic. We have requested six teams up to this point in time, and they, the federal government has provided five teams to support New Mexico, four in San Juan County, and now one at the University of New Mexico. Uh, we have one outstanding request that was not approved because they did not have additional staff. 
there is, of course, a national shortage of healthcare workers. We anticipated in actually November uh, when we started hearing about Omicron that that would create uh, even more acute national staffing shortage. So we put all of our requests in very, very early, which has been successful, just like ordering masks early and ordering home testing early. So we try to stay ahead of the curve. I would like to say too, that I think our federal partners have been just great. I mean, they can't create a nurse out of thin air, uh, unfortunately, I wish they could. Uh, but to the extent that they get, they've been able to help us, uh, it's been more than I was expecting and really has helped, especially uh, uh, key hospitals get through the worst of the crisis that they're going through right now. Next question from Stella Sun from KOAT7. She asks, um, have more hospitals declared crisis standards? Uh, so let me review who has. Uh, it, San Juan Regional Medical Center, El, uh, Gerald Champion in El Magordo, and then in Albuquerque, uh, both Presbyterian hospitals, both UNM hospitals, and then recently, Espanola Hospital, which is part of the Presbyterian change, chain in Espanola, also declared crisis standards of care. But um, <clears throat> that does not mean that they're the only hospitals in duress. All of our hospitals are in serious duress. And so uh, we're doing everything we possibly can, still meeting with them on a very frequent basis to support them, get their needs met, represent them on, uh, in their requests uh, to the federal government for help as well. I forgot to mention on the previous question, Ms. Mays, that uh, we do, uh, in addition, we have four FEMA buses in the state right now going around providing vaccines in all four regions of the state. And then we're going to have four more FEMA teams doing testing all over the state uh, to get us through uh, our, you know, the bottleneck we have right now on testing resources. So again, um, it seems like FEMA has done a great job being flexible in, in meeting our needs. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. And this question also from KOAT7, Vincent Rodriguez asks, with the large spike in cases here in New Mexico, nearing 40% of cases among fully vaccinated individuals, could we see a spike in deaths and hospitalizations following the spike, since historically those have tended to lag behind in case numbers? And a uh, great question, uh, Mr. Rodriguez. Well done. The answer is absolutely yes. You know, we've been, we figured out early on that basically there's a two week lag before we see real data in hospitalization. So we won't really know um, what the impact of Omicron on Omicron is on hospitals till about two weeks after the peak. So that's important. We don't believe we're there yet. And just to get to another question, someone asked, well, when are we going to peak? And currently, the prediction with our from our modeling team is sometime between January 28th and February 2nd, which is a pretty narrow window, actually. I thought that was pretty useful. Um, I think we, uh, I'm hearing a lot about how mild Omicron is, which doesn't really connect well to the fact that every day we're breaking records for the number of Americans in hospitals. So like on an individual basis, how sick you get is one factor. But if three times as many people are getting sick, then that's going to overburden our hospitals further. And I did mention earlier, we're getting a little bit of news from our hospitals and our data is starting to show that people on ventilator, the count of those folks has dropped from around 110 down into the high 70s just over the past four or five days. So 
that's too short of a time period to declare victory or even know what it means, but uh, we will uh, we'll be watching that really closely. Thank you. Next question from Susan Montoya Bryan from the Associated Press. She asks, given the test shortage, does DOH believe testing requirements for schools could be relaxed? And what about pooled testing or other less resource intensive <clears throat> approaches to ensure kids and staff can stay in school? Uh, we're talking about testing requirements for schools right now. We are one of the first states in the uh, test to state program, which, which generally is requiring if, so here's what happens. Someone in the classroom gets COVID, they go home, they're home for uh, five days and could potentially come back with a mask uh, with the new CDC guidance. Everyone else in the class, rather than being sent home and having the class switch to remote, they all come to school and are tested on days one, three, and five. And that way we immediately find new cases and uh, can take positive kids out of the classroom, keep the negative kids present. So the real question would be under that system, can we do a little bit less? And we're looking at that there. Initial, it is very resource intensive. And so uh, that's something that we're uh, uh, trying to figure out right now and, and, uh, and, and see what we can do. And uh, and I think the other part about it, pool testing. So this goes back to all our science slides from, oh gosh, May maybe of 2020. And if you remember, pool testing is only worth doing if the test positivity rate is going to be um, less than about 2%. And we're currently 15 to 20%. So it's actually more labor to do pool testing. And that's where the lab mixes a bunch of samples together, you know, in groups of four, and then just picks the ones that are positive and then drills down. Uh, pool testing is not an option right now because of the high test positivity rate, because of the high case count. Thank you. This question from Telemundo in El Paso, how um, the idea of at-home testing, how did that come about? You know, I think we've been... Um, talking about learning to live with COVID for a long time. And even in August, September, we started looking at different ways of doing testing. And it's not just us. I mean, I think all the other uh, departments of health in the country doing the same sort of thing. But uh, I think we decided to accelerate that with Omicron because we predicted we would be short in short supply for testing. And also to be really honest with this, incredible spike we're seeing now, it's a great opportunity to basically deputize everyone in New Mexico uh, to be our laboratory assistants to test yourself in the privacy of your own home. And so I actually, uh, in preparation for what we were doing, I tried a few of them out in my own home. Uh, you know, I am a doctor, but, you know, my 17-year-old uh, was able to do it quite easily without any instruction for me either. It's not that hard. Um, of course, we get a lot of pictures from people with pictures of their, you know, Binax now card. Is this positive or negative? But, you know, we're, we're, we'll help you work through that. But I think the idea is in the future, the way we're going to learn to live to COVID, like my dream is we get up every morning, we swab our mouth or something, put it in a little thing, a well, maybe put two drops of liquid or six drops of liquid on it and then check it, you know, 15 minutes later. And if it turned red, 
we stayed home and notified the Department of Health if it turned green, we went to work feeling safe. And so I totally think that this, what we're doing now is on the way from where we've been and the time and the inconvenience and the actual inability to prioritize this to what it's going to be like uh, until the pandemic is really, really gone. Thank you. From Chris McKee uh, with KRQE, with respect to at-home tests, is a self-report COVID infectious portal still in the works? Uh, we have a portal for doing it. It's through NM Notify. And unfortunately, there's a bug in it right now. We've been working with Google and Apple every day. Uh, Google and Apple believe they have a fix for this coming up in the next couple of days. So this is a commercial for NM Notify. It's free. It's an app you can download to your Android or iPhone. It will give you the ability to, I'm trying to see if I can open it up on my, uh, uh, it's called NM. Yeah, it is. NM Notify. I can't find it right now. But uh, it uh, gives you the ability. It will give you the ability to report. Also, it sets your phone up to notify you if you can, uh, if you've been in contact with somebody who turns out later to have been COVID positive. So that it won't, it won't tell you who or where or anything else. And it does drive you crazy the first time it happens. But it's a good prompt. It's like, oh, okay, this would be a good time for me to get a test. So we're going to couple those two together. We're working on it. Laura told me we're days away from having a final solution. Great. Next question from Julia Goldberg from the Santa Fe New Mexican and art director. She asks, in response to Janet Woodcock, acting commissioner of Food and Drug Administration statement that most people are going to get COVID, um, what do you have to say about that? I can definitively say that she obviously knows something I don't know. Uh, I think there's lots of different ways of thinking about COVID. Um, you know, if it's a 1.6% mortality rate uh, down the line when everyone gets COVID, that would be an absolutely apocalyptic event for your county, our state, the whole United States. So uh, we don't know how the virus is going to evolve. evolve. And everyone, I hear this thing of, or people say, well, you know, viruses just gradually get milder and milder and milder and milder till they're like influenza. But then remember H1N1 influen H1N1 influenza in 2009 re-evolved into a very, very dangerous variant. So um, I would like to borrow uh, Janet Woodcock's crystal ball. I only need it for 10, 15 minutes, as long as I can ask, you know, one, you know, one question every 15 seconds, we'll be all set. Um, in the interest of time, we have about five minutes left. So we do have a couple of more questions. And I will start with Brittany Costello from KOB. She asks, how much are we trusting the tests? We've heard from some people who have tested negative multiple times with symptoms only to finally have a positive test. Yeah. So first, as a physician, this is true of every test. There's no test that's like 100% accurate other than like an autopsy, perhaps. And so none of us want that. And so there's no perfectly accurate test. Two, I said earlier, I think this idea of a home-based test on day one and day three, uh, you know, or however you want to set it up is really the equivalent of a PCR test. And then uh, lastly, 
I, I have talked to a lot of people on the phone who had that. My first test was a week ago, you know, 10 days ago was negative. And I got another test like seven days ago and it was negative. And now I got one today and it was positive. What does that mean? And, you know, the most likely by far explanation is that that person got COVID between their first test and their, you know, the, between their second test and their third test. It's not that the tests are wrong. Uh, the home-based testing, antigen testing is, is very, if you have a positive test, that's very, very accurate. Uh, you're, you have COVID. Negative tests, there is some room to miss people early in their infection, which is why we rely on the second test. So uh, I think we have to rely on the tests we have, and we want to distribute them in a way that's a convenient but effective. And that's why we're stratifying now asymptomatic people to more uh, uh, home-based or antigen-based testing and symptomatic people to more PCR testing. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. And the final question, Scott Weiland, environment reporter with the Santa Fe New Mexican asks, are you willing at this stage to forecast when we will move past the peak of the Omicron driven <laughs> surge? And if so, when might we see it abate? Yeah, I alluded to this a little bit earlier that our modeling this week and the report should be up there, I think by now, is saying between January 27th and February 2nd, it's kind of strange because we're sort of at a steady case count for the past week. I think I mentioned earlier, eight, eight days in a row with case counts, 5,000 plus or minus 1,000 without a particular trend up or down. Cases, case growth has stopped accelerating for you physicists out there. And so um, I think what we're believing and hoping is that we see it as soon as January 27th, but hopefully right around the end of the month, beginning of, of the next month. And then, and then, which will be great because federal resources for testing and, and uh, masking should be coming online. State resources will be here and then can be used to provide additional protection for Irish people. And uh, I think we're feeling like uh, that's a reasonable uh, way to look at it today. Dr. Grace, before we head out, um, would you mind addressing what's happening with children, with younger children? Do we have case counts or with their hospitalizations um, as well as the vaccinations and, and sort of what the trends are looking like? Yeah, and I, I think, uh, Marissa, you mentioned that we're going to prioritize questions that you can't easily find on the on the uh, um, on our website. And so if you go to the VOH homepage, which I'm not on, but uh, you can, uh, uh, this is the epidemiology reports. And if you go click on the homepage, this purple banner is there, click on medical and scientific reports, then epidemiology reports gets you to the page I was already on. And then you scroll down to pediatric cases, click there and you can scroll through and see. Well, so number one, from zero to four-year-olds, uh, two to three times higher the highest case loads we've seen. Very low case counts, but still uh, new records there. Uh, five to 11, higher peaks, uh, more than twice what we were seeing at that in the middle of Delta. And uh, 12 to 17, well, that's going on three times uh, what we saw. So clearly happening with kids, there is... Uh, 15 page, 14 pages of data here, and you can feel, feel, feel free to scroll through. But just going back to that landing page for epidemiology, 
uh, geographic reports, uh, demographic reports, health and social characters, characteristics reports. And actually, we're under discussions now about moving away from this radically comprehensive amount of information we provide every day to give you just the things that we see you publishing in the newspaper, and then uh, putting even more information like the nursing home report and other things like that into a weekly report. Uh, I don't think I can say definitively when we'll see that, but I think that is something that's under discussion. And actually, since you're the people who get the word out for us, if you have feedback about that or uh, what would be most valuable to you, we'd love we'd love to hear, as long as it's not everything. So uh, thanks. Thank you, Dr. Scrace. And just um, as a final note to reiterate with that, we were looking at um, posting just the cases, the number of cases, the hospitalizations, and the deaths. It seems that that's what most reporters are posting. However, um, we will make sure that there is still that that information, the comprehensive information that you can find, and it will just be shared somewhere else. But what we will put out will be those top three. And I think um, I think we're talking about tests too. Well, our daily te- number of tests. Okay, and I believe um, that that sort of wraps up what today's news conference. We appreciate everybody um, who attended, and we'll be trying this format again next week. And meantime, is there anything else that you would like to add? Yes, Dr. Scrace? Yeah, I just have one last comment, Ms. Mays, and that is uh, those three things. Boosters work. Get yours if you don't have it already. Um, uh, join us, help us with the home testing program. Order online from the feds. Uh, help us learn. Uh, we'll be getting to you where you can get them in your community as well. And we're working on online uh, method for some of the folks in New Mexico anyway. And then lastly, upgrade your mask. I uh, went to UNM to see patients on Monday and instead of my blue procedure mask, uh, I had an N95 waiting for me. For healthcare personnel, these need to be fitted uh, professionally. And so not every mask works for every person, but for you all, all you need to know is it needs to fit tightly enough that when you breathe, you can kind of feel a little bit of resistance you can you might feel a little winded if you wear one exercising. So that's it. Boosters, test at home, masks, and see you next week. All right. Quickly, Dr. Scrace, just as, as a question with those masks and asking people to upgrade, we know that masks really protect other people. Will they offer some protection for individuals also? Yeah, the higher grade and quality of mask you get, the more two-way protection there is. Great. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye-bye.